This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, Guinevere. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Hi, we're so, we're so happy to have you. Um, so I'm going to get started with the questions. GoFish depicts many personal details, like the character Eli's penchant for tea, and it gives the film an autobiographical feel. But how did the story come about? I asked that question because screenwriters often say characters speak to them. Others say they visualize the scenes in their head. How was it for you? We, uh, Rose Trochet, the director, and I were Number one edict, you know, purpose, drive was we want to make a lesbian film that represents community and not, you know, one woman struggling or, you know, just like just happy, normal people, so to speak. And so we knew that was going to be hard. Uh, And so one of the first things I said was, I'll be one of the characters. And then my next move was to write a character I thought I could play. And then we just started, we literally would go to a place, see someone that we thought would look good on camera and that read as queer and say, do you want to be in a movie? And so a lot of the characters are developed in and around the people who are playing them because the script was sort of ever evolving. So um, yeah, it was a kind of a chaotic, uh, very non-traditional process as screenwriting and filmmaking goes. because we were very, very much working with what we had and what we saw and what we thought we could pull off and whose house we could shoot in and if the, per- the thing the person was wearing was going to work for the character and, you know, all that indie film stuff. Okay. So you, would you say that it wasn't a traditional writing process in the sense that did you start by with an outline and going through the acts? How was the writing process for you? Utterly chaotic. It, it started with... It started with me. It started with me finding a wedding dress that fit me perfectly in a thrift store for ten dollars, and then I started thinking that I was, which is just so weird that it fit me so well. Why I was trying on a wedding dress, I do not know. But and then I was sort of thinking about that, and I wrote this the voiceover that that is in the wedding dress scene, and then Rose had this whole vision for it, and she when we shot it, and we didn't have a story idea. We just did that. And all of the people in our community, and a lot of them were people who are in film school or had been uh, in Chicago, just got really excited. And all of a sudden, we just felt all this energy and thought like, oh, we can make this longer. And so we wrote a sort of very, very minimal, like half hour story, half of which was experimental, half of which was documentary, talking heads to just the people we knew. And so it was just this constant kind of like, wait, maybe it can be this wait, maybe we can do this. And so it was, it couldn't have been more of a mess. I mean, Rose had, I mean, in terms of traditional process, uh, it was a happy, happy process. Um, Rose had come from a degree in experimental film and I had come from studying fiction in undergrad, fiction writing. So, you know, we were both coming at it from very kind of like, and I remember saying to Rose, well, I mean, yeah, let's make a lesbian movie that speaks to us and speaks to our experience and our community. And, and I said, I mean, I've never read a screenplay and I've never written a screenplay, but how hard can it be? People just walk into a room and they say things and they walk out. 
<laughs> it's now 25 years later and I realize there's a little more to it than that. Yes. So tell us about how you collaborated with Rose and the production company. Um, we were the production company. The way that we made that film was um, from five different schools in the Chicago area, um, getting people who were students that had access to their equipment. And that's how we got a lot of our equipment, you know, maxing out her, like playing good cop, bad cop, maxing out her credit card and, and keeping my bank account legit for when it, we needed a legit bank account. She's always been mad at me for who got which role. Um, so uh, our process was, I mean, we were girlfriends at the time. We lived together. Um, there was a lot of, um, it was just what we always did. We, we both had day jobs. And so it was just like, come home, make dinner, sit down and start, you know, disagreeing about everything that's happening. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was very, uh, neither of us had ever read a, a screenplay book or taken a class. So, I mean, and it shows, but I think it shows in a way that, that at least Rose went to school and knew how to do a lot of really interesting, you know, visual things and experimental things. While I was always saying like, why do we need a shot of a coffee cup? She's like, it represents it. Why do we need this, this shot of a spinning top? She's like, you'll see, you'll see. And so there was a lot of also trust where I'm like, no one, there's no violence against LGBT people in this film. And she was like, mm, I feel like there should be. And there's like one little compromise there where somebody, you know, yells at the Kia character from a car, but she gets to sort of just say, you know. So there's a lot of, uh, it was a lot of like, just imagine, you know, working with a partner where, the, you know, there's no, there's not a lot of, uh, it's not a sheen of etiquette. It's like, no, that's stupid. No, that's brilliant. I have an idea. Uh, so yeah, it was it was uh, nightly and exhausted, but 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 exciting because we were just really. The more we did it, the more energy um, came around it. You know, from the people we knew in the in the LGBT community and the film community, and so people were. I don't know. Felt like we were putting on a show. Awesome. When I watched the film, I noticed that it didn't follow, you know, the strict hero's journey structure that film schools teach. So it's great to hear the process that was behind that. Another thing about the film is um, poetry is the mode of expression that grants access to the interiority of Max, a sexual woman subject. And we see a similar use of poetry in Beyonce's Lemonade. And we all know that Go Fish is, um, has a firm place in queer cinema, but do you see this usage of, of poetry to assert a sexual woman subject in cinema as um, your work as a part of the emergence of a genre? Well, first of all, thanks for putting me in the same sentence with Beyonce. Um, I, you know, it's so hard to really, I can make up, you know, sort of grand intentions or, or philosophies around it, but it was, I was still an instinctive writer back then. You know, I was 24 when I started writing that. Um, and I, you know, hadn't read a lot of screenplays, although I obviously had loved films. And so I didn't know how else to do it. You know, it never occurred to me even, that, you know, that it would be voiceover without her actually writing. Um, so, um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I, I wanted her to be, you know, um, on the exterior, a very 
sort of happy-go-lucky, easygoing person, but to have this inner life that wasn't, she didn't really, she was kind of wasn't grown up enough to express. Uh, and that's sort of where that came from. But it's also just what I do in the morning. I literally, two days ago, I took a cup of coffee. I was wearing pajamas just like I am in the opening scene. And I sat down and I put the cup of coffee down and I readjusted myself with a journal the way I am in that scene. And I was like, <laughs> 25 years later, that's really me. So that's funny. Yes. I love that the poetry scene with um, when Max is in the bridal gown. Everything that she said was so beautiful and just rings true. Um, we learn sort of piggybacking off the poetry question. We learn a great deal about Max through words, um, her poetry and the psychoanalysis of her friend Kia and through um, her friend Circle Talks, which is a recurring motif in the film. Um, what was behind this emphasis on telling as opposed to simply showing? I think, so we were always calling that, you know, when it's the kind of abstraction of the four people, sometimes, every time one of them is different, gossiping about, you know, the, their progress. I think we were, we were kind of going for a cheeky nod at um, how gossip, like, you know, like the lesbian community at that time, certainly ours was very gossipy and very motivated by, you know, behind the scenes talking and orchestrating. But I feel like that, you know, uh, isn't necessarily LGBTQ. There's just something, it was just sort of an outward, you know, visual expression of, um, uh, you know, how gossip can inform uh, people getting together or not. Um, and again, it was just, you know, we could have them in a cafe or we could just have fun with it and, you know, throw in a mannequin head. And <laughs> we were just, we were very free with our ideas and, and very willing to just go for it in a way that I think now we're both, you know, many years later, a little more nervous that it's just too weird. But back then, we didn't know. We had no idea how many people would ever see it. So we were mostly doing it for ourselves and our friends. So we thought. Awesome. Um, the film begins with a conversation about the need to intervene in the structured absence of lesbians' lives throughout history. Was this your intention um, behind the goal of this film, making lesbians visible on script and screen? Um, absolutely. We, it was all about visibility and all about, um, you know, correcting erasure, even if it was in a bit of a, a, a quick and cheeky way in the beginning of the movie. And uh, Rose just reminded me that we actually were nervous because nobody says Jodie Foster, but like the word, the name Jodie is written on the board. And we, and we were like, can we get sued for this? We're just, and we're calling Peppermint Patty a Peanuts character, <laughs> queer. I mean, like she was though. But um, so we, we actually felt like that was a little risky and, 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 you know, in some uh, incarnations of it, when we had, test audiences or people watching it, they felt like it was a heavy handed way to open the story. But we were like, no, like, this is what we're talking about. This is, you know, we're talking about visibility and we're talking about, uh, you know, reclaiming some of these spaces and some of these, you know, women in history. So we were proud. We tried to have fun with it. We tried not to make it too heavy handed. Uh, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I think the take, nobody remembers that it's funny. They just remember like, 
wow, okay, ladies, we see that you have an agenda here, which is fine. We did. And also in the film, a Black woman assumes the role as the educator. Um, and oftentimes in film, um, b- Black women are constructed as homophobic, as like the Bible-toting, strict mom who becomes the object of teaching or explaining. But in this film, we see a different representation. Um, How did this come about? Well, I mean, immediately, once we started thinking about who was going to be in the film, it said to me, um, we, you know, wanted to have a diverse cast, like obviously not all white people. And and I was just talking with Rose about it. She's like, I just wanted the brown people to be the grownups. She's like, because Evie is Puerto Rican and, and you know, Kia's black and, and they, you know, she's she's a professor and she's got a real job and the rest of us are just like running around like homing in a day, you know, just being hot messes, even though actually we're all, we're all about the same age uh, in this movie, uh, in real life. Um, so I think um, it was really about that, about, you know, about giving the women of color and the, the, the story, uh, the ones who were, had their... <laughs> That's what Rose said. I, I was trying to remember how it all evolved. And she's, Rose said, we always wanted there to be a professor character. And then, and then when we met Wendy, who plays Kia, we were, she just, she just sort of has a kind of like gravitas to her that, you know, we felt like, yeah, she's, she, she's perfect. And she loves, she loved a blazer. She was not mad at a blazer. Yes. <laughs> I, I love a blazer too. Um, <laughs> So one thing that struck me when I met you was how committed you have consistently been to diversity. And often when it comes to writing screenplays, students are often told to cater to a mainstream audience. And they usually mean um, white, hetero, middle class. And I'm just curious, what, what, what drives your commitment to that diversity it's been consistent in your career, it's consistent in your teaching with students. Like what drives that? I don't know. I just, I don't know. It just seems, it's just always been, well, it's, I'm, I'm reflecting and thinking about the people around me, you know, I, I it's, so it's that, like I, it would, I feel like it would be embarrassing to only represent people who look like me, white people and, and not, you know, reflect what I see in, in my life. I don't, it just feels like, imperative if anything else is just embarrassing <laughs> that's that's my very academic answer it's just it's just always been you know it, it seemed I mean you know in the case of go fish that you know our, our community was not was not uh you know homogenous at all and and Rose the director is Puerto Rican and she and she is from Chicago and so she very much wanted to have a character that somehow intersected with her experience growing up um with a not so um LGBT friendly family. So yeah, it's just, that it's just reflecting my life. Okay. Um, in one scene, speaking of this burden of representation, Max and Ely debate the role of the filmmaker. Um, and specifically they were talking about a queer film that they had just seen. And Ely makes the case that a representation isn't necessarily nor should be representative of an entire group. And Max voices concerns over negative representation. Taking your experiences in film and television and publishing into account, what is your stance today on representation? Well, um, 
So just for a fun fact, the, the film that we were not saying the title of that we were debating, which is replicating a conversation that Rose and I were having, is the is Greg Araki's The Living End, in which it was one of the first, you know, queer gay male films that where the characters were not um I don't know, they weren't necessarily great people. They were just doing what they were doing and they had guns and they were, you know, troublemakers. Um, and we were very much like, huh, is that okay? And now it's a whole different conversation because there's so much more out there. And, you know, when I was working on the TV show, The L Word, uh, I would be like, we need, we need bad LGBTQ people. We need villains. Like, we're, I think we've evolved enough to actually be able to just be like, I don't know, everybody else gets to be, even though in 19 or you know, 92, 93, when we were making the film, I was like, no, no violence, no sadness, just little edges here and there of truth, but let's just do this. Um, so it, it, I mean, wonderfully has changed, although obviously not as much as it could, but if you had told 25 year old me what's what's on tv and in film i would have I, I don't know if i would have believed it it seems so far out of reach but i might have not have also believed that i would live to be 52 so <laughs> well we, we're glad that happened um, <laughs> <laughs> so the film speaking of um sort of ver- moving into deeper traumatic topics the film touches on Evie's family's resistance to her sexuality. Um, But this traumatic outing, it isn't the center of the story. The support that she receives from her partner Kia and from her friends is the focus. Can you speak um, to this treatment of Evie and her family struggles? Yes. So uh, as I said, that was very much something that Rose wanted to include. It's not her experience but it is close to her brother's experience. Her brother is also gay. And funnily, that is her brother in the scene. He is the actor. Um, uh, And so she was just telling me today, reminding me that we wanted to just have this little dip into family and then to show Evie soon after you know, at a dinner party, making jokes and sort of contrast it to like, this is actually family. And, you know, the whole concept, you know, in queer life of the families we choose and that if we're fortunate enough that we have those. And so I think it was that she just wanted to dip into a little bit of the pain to show what the, the you know, what the antidote or the bomb for it was. Um, I'm just looking down at my notes because she said a lot of funny things. Um, yeah, no, that was it. So yeah, it was that. And and it was, uh, it was a tough, it was a tough day shooting because most of what we were shooting was funny or playful or, you know, whatever adventurous. And this was like getting at some emotional cores for her and for her brother who was there being the bad guy. Uh, so I, I remember, I remember being on the set and thinking, is this movie, is this scene going to fit? Is it getting, you know, tonally, but I feel like it does because of where we go, where we take her afterwards. Okay. And on set, did any of the cast members um, sort of express any concerns about that scene or was everyone, did everyone understand the vision? Oh, everyone absolutely understood. I think, you know, 
bearing in mind that most LGBT films had some kind of pain in them, I think they were like, okay, all right, this we understand. Like, why is everyone so happy? Here's a scene of like, you know, what so many of us have gone through, which is conflict with our family. Uh, so no, I think everyone was absolutely fine with it. Not so with another scene. Yes. Um, so your work, well, actually, let's talk about that other scene. Okay. Um, so in the film, there is a character, Daria, who identifies as lesbian. However, we also see her having sex with a man. And as she's walking home, she's confronted by a group of lesbians. And so they basically begin an inquisition. So in this scene, it brings to the surface antagonisms and the boundaries and uncertainties around identity within this lesbian community. Talk to us about this inquisition. Um, I really wanted to put that scene in there because I felt like for some women that I, lesbian identified women that I was close with, like, sure, they maybe had a one night stand with a man and it didn't make them feel like they were a different person. It's just a thing that happened. Um, and when we actually, when the, you know, the, everyone who's working on the film read the script, uh, I'd say about half of the women working on the film said they were going to quit if we shot this scene, which only underlined to me that we had to do it because what is that? You know, that's, that's a, that was in, you know, an echo of the actual behavior in the scene, which is like, this is, this never happens. And I'm like, I know we, I, what, I know some of you, you know, and why, like, why does it, why do you bristle? And this was before we realized that so many people were going to see it, that we were going to become, you know, the, uh, uh, nature documentary for a lot of people who never, who didn't know any lesbians in their real life. Um, and it was very interesting. I just felt it was important because I felt that, you know, just really conversations about how many, I mean, they literally say it's a little heavy handed, actually the scene <laughs> as a piece of writing, you know, but you know, how many times do you have sex with a man before you lose your, your uh, credibility, you know, just the, just some pointing to the ridiculousness of it all and how we should all just be able to define ourselves however we want to a point. Um, so, I mean, one of the things about it was that a lot of women came up to us at screenings over the, you know, the first couple of years and said, I felt shunned by my community. I, you know, I, I wish that I had never told anyone, you know, and, you know, this whole idea of the gold star lesbian is the lesbian who's never had sex with a man. And, you know, this like, you know, which just fears creepily into some kind of idea of purity, which is a dangerous, uh, you know, space. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, everybody, everybody's in the scene, which is half the people who are working on the movie were were happy with it and, and maybe erased their initial reaction to it uh and and we were very affirmed because of because of the response from well response from women uh response from mainstream press so like so all lesbians really have sex with men and we're like no and it's just like it really underlined the fact that we didn't realize that so many people were going to see our movie and that suddenly we were going to be the poster children for ask me about how lesbians are. Um, because, because I was like, Ooh, would we have put that in there if we knew that we were going to be talking to mainstream press and having to like 
I'm like, it's just a little too advanced for a newbie to the culture. Um, but I, but, but I would still put it in there. Yeah, and that scene speaks to um, the voice of the film. Your work consistently constructs an internal voice. And by internal voice, I mean you are speaking to a queer community as opposed to an external voice, which assumes a mainstream, um, e.g. heterosexual audience. And, and you're not explaining your difference to this assumed audience. Um, what was behind that internal consistency when you were when you are making the film i mean i feel like the honest truth is is that we were kind of underselling ourselves like i mean i'm very happy we didn't know what was what the journey the film was going to take because it might have corrupted us a little bit um we really really were sitting in a bar and we saw this scene from this very silly 80s movie called switch in which a man is you know uh horrible to women and he's punished by coming back as ellen barkin <laughs> and so most of the movie is ellen barkin being a like a man in a woman's spot like it's just all super awkward and, and not right but there's a scene where they where she because she's really a man a heterosexual man she goes to a lesbian bar and we were just watching this movie sitting in this bar and then this lesbian bar is like a piano bar with like photos of Greta Garbo on the wall. And like the women are wearing, well, the, the, it's all women, but, but you know, the butchy ones are wearing tuxedos and like, there's like soup, everyone has a soup, you know, everyone's super binary in their, in their presentation. And we were, it's like, a, we were just like, where is this bar? Like this bar does not exist. And then we, it just started a conversation. Weirdly, this really dumb scene in this dumb movie started a conversation about how underrepresented we felt. Um, and how we didn't care. We weren't going to try to make a movie for the world, but we at least wanted it sort of on record, like who we really were and, you know, what life was really like and how that bar didn't exist. <laughs> yes. Um, so talk to us about the decision to make the film in black and white. Um, was it at all in conversation with or connected to Spike Lee's representations and she's got to have it? Um, no, not at all. It was um, a, a completely budgetary. Um, and Rose, and Rose, I mean, it's Rose, if she was here, would be like, no, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it's way cheaper to shoot on black and white film than it is on color film and way, and way cheaper to process, most importantly. Um, but I mean, she, Rose had a lot of black and white films that she, shh, that's my dog. Um, Rose felt very inspired, she said, by Todd Haynes' Poison. And it's, that film had come out maybe two or three years before, and it's a triptych, and, and one section is black and white. And she said she got very enchanted by that. And so she got, although it was, you know, obviously going to be cheaper, but she got excited about the idea of shooting in black and white. Um, and just a funny, so we had not seen She's Gotta Have It at that point. I don't know why, um, but a funny thing about Spike Lee and Go Fish, one sec, dog going away, go away, is a funny thing about Spike Lee and Go Fish is that I knew someone who was working with him back when Go Fish came out, and she said that he saw Go Fish and said, oh, man, they totally bit my style from She's Gonna Have It. That is so funny. I'm like, 
the, the movies could not be more different except, you know, the black and white and the, the, the 90s indie sensibility, I guess. But, but otherwise, just so different. Anyway, I just it's always been funny to me that Spike Lee thinks that we were copying him. You know, I read I read an article by a, a queer black feminist. Her name is Jewel. And she wrote how um, she, she you know she wrote a critique of Spike Lee's representation of um, lesbian women. And she she actually wrote about how the watermelon woman was a representation of um, lesbian women that didn't depict lesbian women as crazy and you know imbalanced and so that's why I wanted to ask if it was in conversation at all because you were also a part of the watermelon woman so I just wanted to know if there were any connections at all. It's funny because I would love to ask Cheryl Denier the director of watermelon woman if but I'm sure she'd seen she's got to have it by that point um and I'm sure it and and um yeah so uh, I don't know but if we were just in our own little bubble I mean we were aware of Spike Lee but you know it wasn't the same you couldn't just get tired and then turn on your computer and watch movies to yeah. go places and spend money right <laughs> um <laughs> talk to us about the scene transitions um you already mentioned that Rose was she had graduated from an experimental film program um, and so the transitions are, are really beautiful. There are shadows of women bodies, white objects, and close framing of moving objects. Can you talk a little bit about those transitions? And Yes. So she, she, she reminded me today that actually a lot of those were reshoots, that once she was editing, she edited the film she was feeling like it needed, you know, breathing room. And she was also, I think she was kind of fighting, like it just wasn't experimental enough for her. Like she just didn't want to be, you know, conventional. Um, Again, she said she was inspired by Poison, the Todd Haynes film, but also um, we were talking about, at the time there was this uh, publication called Research and it had this issue called angry women and it was full of performance artists and women who were writing on their bodies and Jeanette Winterson had a a book that we all loved called written on the body and so we were like I think we were both really trying to kind of like hold on to it being art and hold on to taking risks and um and to our own backgrounds and so like I said, I wasn't as cool as her. I, I was kind of like, mm, I don't know about that. But she's like, no, but don't people understand the spinning top, you know, represents possibility. And, you know, she was very, um, she, she was very into, you know, visual metaphor and, and didn't, and, and didn't want anyone to tell her not to take those flights of fancy. So um, yeah, she, she said, not Maya Darren, the experimental filmmaker, but um Kind of, she's like, I, 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 I had a bachelor's sold from a million artists because she was studying all kinds of installation artists and people like that when she was in school. Okay. Um, we have several questions from the audience, so I'm going okay. to start with some of them. Okay. Um, one of our attendees would like to know what you are working on in the moment. Um, isn't that weird when... I'll, like all I do all day is work on what I'm working on. And I'm like, wait, what am I working on? <laughs> um, 
Uh, I'm working on uh, a book. I, I published an essay in uh, The New Yorker last year, and, and that resulted in a book deal uh, about my childhood. So uh, that's a whole new world for me because I, I almost always write screenplays. I am, um, what else am I doing? Developing a TV show about cult deprogrammers, which is a, a might sound like a non-existent thing, but it's actually a really funny, weird subculture. I mean, funny. Some of, them, some of it's not very funny. Um, and I don't know. I just want to write a romantic comedy again. People always, you know, when I talk about my other films, talk to me about, you know, the edgy material, the serial killers, the cult leaders. Well, I'm like, I don't know if you've seen my first film. It's not super traditional, but it is a romantic comedy. I'm I'm not ashamed to say that I love romantic comedies, and I would love to find some a fun way to to um, take the genre and play with it. Um, but nobody hires me to do that. Awesome, and that kind of. Um flows into the next question. Chelsea Kim asks, where would you like to see LGBTQ plus representation within film and TV go in the future? Ooh, that's a big chunk of question. Um, I mean, I guess the, the, it, it, is, it is already evolving to this direction, but I, I guess that it's just not a spectacle at all. That it's not, uh, it's not a gay show or a lesbian show. That it just is a show with people, and some of them are that. But I, but I, I resist saying things like you know people who just happen to be gay because that's kind of a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a, a dulling of identity. Um, I just like I feel like we're in a good phase right now where there's a push for representation and diversity of all kinds, not just LGBT. But there's a, there's a bit of self-consciousness to it. There's a, you know, that so every once in a while you'll see a character and you'll feel like, oh, that, they, they felt like they had to do that. Um, and so I'm hoping that it, it gets a little smoother. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's what I hope for. I don't know. It's so hard to say. It's so hard to say because, you know, there's disaster around every corner. <laughs> really. Yes. Potentially. Yes. Um, another guest would like to know, um, can you talk about your work on the L word and are there things you learned through GoFish that you apply to that experience? Hmm. Well, that was really interesting because I was actually working on it with Rose uh, Troche, who directed GoFish. Uh, so that was, we had just a lot of fun being like, I mean, I was on the L word before I was hired as a writer I auditioned to be the character of Tina did not get the part obviously. And then I called or my agent called back and said, I asked if I could audition for bet. I did not get the part. And then Rose said, well, you should really meet with the creator of the show as a writer. And I was like, no, I'm like, first of all, it's so embarrassing to have auditioned for someone twice and have them say no and come back a third time as a writer. But second of all, I was just having a tantrum and I said, you know, not everything I do is has to be lesbian, lesbian, lesbian. Like I don't have to work on the lesbian show. And Rose was like, GT, there's going to be a one hour drama on Showtime. It's historical. Do you not want to us help me? Like 
make sure that it's the best thing it can possibly be. Um, and so I was like, yes, of course. So it was, well, it was interesting because it, we couldn't be experimental really. And we couldn't be, um, it's just so, TV is so different. And, but, but on the first season, it, you know, before it ever aired and we didn't know if it was popular, we were always like pushing, 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 like, let's do this and let's do that. And like, let's have sex toys and let's have boxy content. And, I don't know. We were just <laughs> always just being like, what, how far can we push this? Cause you know, it's showtime and their tagline still is no limits. So we'd be like, Eileen, the creator show, Eileen, Eileen, what about this? What about that? Um, Cause we were just saying, you know, we wanted it to be edgy and she was always like, calm down you guys like it's our first season we have to we have to get our foot in the door okay so the next question is actually a, a really great question um and it connects to your point about um sort of seeing hoping to see a lesbian film in a way that it's perceived as normal and in many ways to me I see Goldfish as a part of a golden era and of, you know, of the 90s. And so mm-hmm. in Go Fish, there's a cutting hair scene. And um, in Wait Into Exhale, there's a cutting hair scene. So the question is, can you talk more about this hair cutting scene? Why was it important to depict this transfer, this, this transformation in Eli? Um, I think for us, it wasn't so much about, you know, the the femininity of long hair or short hair or, you know, you know, that conversation, it was about uh, the character needing to let go and that she needed to let, to realize that her relationship that was long distance was no longer um, working or even really active or even really doing anything for her. Um, And, you know, there's just kind of nothing more symbolic than losing than taking, you know, letting go of that much hair. That hair has literally been with you for all these years. Um, What did happen, though, was that V.S., who plays Eli, agreed to do it. But it took us about six months to get to that scene. And then she was like, I don't want to cut my hair anymore. Mm. And we were like, "Um, you have to. It's, It's a huge part of the story now. And we love it. We love it visually, et cetera. And so if you, anyone goes back and watches that scene, she is actually crying and we were shooting around it. Oh, wow. By the way, her hair has been short ever since. Okay. <laughs> like, so like she grew it back. It was just like, it was a, I don't think she realized what it would feel like, you know, it's a lot to let go of for mm-hmm. anyone who's ever had a serious haircut, which I have, there's a, there's a, there's a loss and an anxiety, you know? Um, but I don't know. It just felt like a powerful thing to have a character do, which is sort of, you know, that's the stuff of Greek mythology. Yes. Um, Cynthia Falando, who is a professor in the film and media studies department here at UC Santa Barbara has a question. Um, she says, I really love the musical style scene after Max and Ely have sex. And Ely kind of dances around the neighborhood with such delight. It's so funny and fun. Um, like the other brilliant comedic scenes, the tea, no clipping, et cetera. Can you talk about that scene, your comedic impulses or inspiration? Yes, I love that scene too. Um, first of all, I'd just like to point out that we never got the rights to that song and somehow got away with it. That's like the Mambo King, Perez Prados, Bombo. Uh, I forget what the song is called, but you know, at the, I was always like, 
it's one day Columbia Records is going to come for us and our whole movie is going to get shut down, but it's so perfect. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure some people who are paying, who are uh, watching right now can identify with like the spring in your step after you hook up with someone that you really liked. And we just decided to take it to like high cartoon level and for some reason, BS, who wasn't always that comfortable, who plays Eli, wasn't always that comfortable with dialogue. Just, I don't know. She just, she was just dancing down the street and we just had so much fun with sound design. Like there's, she just, a cat just did that. There's just like this, and I don't know. And Rose had so much fun with editing. Like it was just one of the most fun times that we had just being completely silly. But, but again, like, you know, finding joy, you know, finding like, you know, joy and also, that that joy is universal. That's not exclusive to lesbians. That's just someone who just, you know, hooked up and feels hopeful about the future. Um, yeah, that was, that's good stuff. There's a cat meow in it that just makes me laugh every time. <laughs> <laughs> so Autumn Wilbur asks, in creating the film, how much were you influenced by the 1990s wave of feminism? And it's things of womanhood, sexuality, and questioning heteronormativity. Hmm. I mean, I graduated from college in 1990 and had read, you know, French feminists, you know, contemporary American feminists, uh, uh, and Rose had similarly. So I would say deeply, but but so deeply that we weren't even really talking about it. It was actually just... uh, all of that stuff was so important to us and creating a world where there really weren't any men was, you know, we, we, we were just thinking about, uh, well, there weren't a lot of men in our actual mm-hmm. lives, but also just, again, sort of creating a slight like utopian I, feminist ideal of a world of women where that's, that's who's centered and that's who, that's who matters and that's who matters to each other. I mean, did we pass the Bechdel test or what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bechdel test, uh, Alison Bechdel, the, the artist writer, um, created it. It's a, you know, the test is, how does it go? Do you know what Asatu? It's, um, are there, is there more than one conversation? Oh, not me to mess it up. But basically it's, are, do women have conversations in this movie and are they not about men? And what, and it's it's a little better than that, but I encourage everyone to look it up because you can love a movie and it does not pass that test. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and obviously, she didn't. Alison Bechdel didn't uh, come up with that till years later. But I, mm, this is another movie that I wrote that one hundred percent does not pass it. <laughs> yes, that actually reminds me of Lena Waithe's Thanksgiving. The the only man in that in that episode is dev and that's because it's his show Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but other than that the whole episode revolves around women i bring that up to ask you are there any artists who you look at and you think you know they are doing a really great job um i mean michaela cole lena wave um phoebe waller bridge those are those are all people working with tv um, but yeah, I feel like there's some amazing women working right now. It's I'm jealous and excited all at once. I mean, those two just like obviously rise to the top because they're just yeah. just doing so much. And just I feel like every six months we get some new delightful thing that one has done mm-hmm. that, that's like breaking 
rules and breaking ground and all of that. Yes. Um, another question from Jan Libby. Um, any interest in returning to the GoFish story world? Where are they today? I have had so many hilarious conversations with Rose Troche about this. Um, but sometimes end in fights. We're kind of like family now, so there may or may not be fights. We always laugh that GoFish, is, it's like we have a, a child in their 20s. <laughs> Um, we, we first talked about, uh, making a sequel that was called go F star star K yourself. Um, and it was just about kind of like a big chill thing where they all have to come back for a funeral and they, you know, and, and like, you know, every, like Eli and Max are long since broken up and they have to deal with each other's girlfriends and like, you know, just like messy, you know, people in their forties, uh, as we were, um, we thought about that. And then we thought, oh, I don't know. The problem is that none of us, well, I am now, but everyone else is not actors. Do you know what I mean? It's not like if you're, and they, everybody has their own careers now. So bringing a bunch of people who really aren't actors now and are no longer young could, might not result in a great movie. Mm-hmm. But then Rose had the idea that we would do Go Fish 2.0, where it would actually be a very similar script but then imagining, you know, those four talking heads thing that we do as some sort of group text, social media, you know, just modernizing it and having, seeing how the story would age in a contemporary setting. And then, you know, we can all do old lady cameos in, in different corners and be like, oh my God, that's her. Uh, so I, I actually love that idea. Um, I, you know, Rose is directing uh, FBI's Most Wanted right now. She's very busy. <laughs> she well, really- Jan- Jan approves of that um, Goldfish 2.0 idea. Just wanted to let you know. I mean, I think it's pretty clever. I got to give it to Rose. That was her idea. Yes. Um, So let me ask, this is another question and it kind of ties back into the question about um, the use of dialogue. Um, The question is, the film gives a voice to the internal dialogues a queer woman has with herself around dating, presenting, sex, coming out to family, I'm curious why not choose to treat the internal dialogue around coming out to oneself in the first place. Oh, maybe, maybe she's referring to Evie. Um, meaning that I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm or the person. I don't know. Perhaps. Um, okay. Go ahead. I think the person can is possibly saying that, with Evie, we didn't get access to internal dialogue. Oh, oh, well, that's just because Max is the only one who gets to have internal dialogue because I feel like, although you could have multiple characters with internal dialogues, that's a real commitment in a very different movie. That somehow I just instinctively knew, uh, maybe just from seeing a lot of movies. So it's just not Evie's movie. Um, when it's interesting to think about, but, but we, but we also were, were, you know, that it's at, at its heart on one hand, it's really needs, it needs to be a romantic comedy. It needs to be this character mm-hmm. figuring herself out. And so that's kind of the journey um, that we were centering because we also wanted it to feel hopeful and you know, that she's, she's just young. And I don't know why I was writing this young character. Like I wasn't young, but I was always like, you know, she's young. She hasn't figured herself out. <laughs> like, what did I think I was? 
Um, and the film isn't really about coming out. The film is about, is about, I think you've mentioned before, the film is about portraying a lesbian community that is supportive. And so it isn't necessarily about coming out, would you say? Yes, absolutely not. It's, it's about navigating life uh, as people in a community. Um, uh, and whether we meant to or not, we weren't pandering to see us as normal, but that was kind of like, we were just sort of saying, this is what our lives are actually like. Um, we've all, we're all in our twenties. We've all come out or, and, and what gone through what if, if the good, the bad and the ugly, whatever it was for each of us. And we don't talk about it a lot. Like that's what we talk about is what we're, our jobs and our dating scene and our, you know, that's our, that's our reality. So, yeah, I mean, we may have aggressively and I guess one could argue irresponsibly avoided the coming out, the conflicts that people have at all ages, but that was part of the, that was part of the fantasy really. Yes. And so, how how was the response back when you all went to Sundance and now it becomes this classic film? Um, but in that moment, what was the reaction to see the reception of the film, the widespread reception? Um, blown away. So like, and trying to catch up, me being like, what's a distributor? Like, how does, you know, I just didn't really know much at all about, like, the, the nuts and bolts of the business of film and, like, what it meant to be doing press night and day and what it, like, what it meant that we were, like, we were the first, the fastest film sold at Sundance historically at that time that our film sold in three days. It was a whirlwind um, and constantly finding ourselves uh, being um, confronted with inappropriate sort of sexual questions about lesbians as if our film had given people permission to just ask us anything uh, and, you know, trying to find a balance of how to answer that without getting or getting sad actually, or getting upset. Like how, how I mean, people would ask us really explicit sexual questions and we were just like, what? Like, I don't ask you about how you have sex. Like, I don't, right. you know, not my business. So uh, it was, it was super intense. And the thing is that I am the kind of person who's just like, this is amazing. I'm figuring out as I go along, uh, you know, wow. Uh, you know, I hope I don't say anything stupid. And Rose is the kind of person who will get under the covers in our, in our uh, cabin in Sundance and be like, Oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> Are we making the right choices? And I'm like, yeah, it. it's an amazing time. So uh, in that way, we're a good team. Um, so yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. And that was just the beginning. We, we went all over the world with this film and we were broke and we were just like sometimes fighting and sometimes not, but we're like, here we are in Madrid. Here we are in Tokyo. I mean, it was incredible. I was really, I, well, I kind of couldn't believe my life because I just never ever thought it would take me to all those places. Wow. And in, in the, as the film grew and gained in popularity, were there any moments where a new distributor or, or anyone with money who offered, um, offered it to you all's projects, did anyone suggest you all make any changes to the film at all? No. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, no. I stand corrected. The title. The title, uh, so uh, 
a, a well-known man, in, especially in 90s cinema, named John Pearson, who wrapped Spike Lee's first film, uh, Richard Linkletter's first film, uh, Michael Moore's first film, and our first film, uh, who wrote a book called Spikes, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, if anyone wants to delve deep into 90s uh, independent cinema, um, we being the titular Dykes. Um, he, uh, sorry, I just blanked on the question, but I have, it was the perfect answer. Oh, he wanted, he wanted us to change the title. Okay. Uh, so the initial title, original title was Eli and Max. And uh, he just said, you know, two name titles, like, you know, these titles are gender neutral. It doesn't like, it doesn't, it's not evocative of the fact that it's two women. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't do anything. Um, and we sort of agreed, you know, we weren't, we weren't resistant. We just didn't have a great idea. And so we actually went down the street from where Rose was editing and, and just brainstormed on a cocktail napkin and uh, Go Fish was born. Oh, and we were sorry. like, is it dumb? Is it goofy? <laughs> like they do play Go Fish in the movie, but like, is it, you know, uh, does it, does it land? But it, it's just kind of catchier, you know? Yes. Or evocative. You can, you could take it a million ways, but yeah. So that was the only thing. And we weren't, we weren't uh, upset by it. Okay. Um, so my next question for you is, um, I noticed a lot of scenes on like the porches or the stoops or in the doorways. So I kind of wanted to ask you the significance of the setting in general in Chicago. Hmm. I'm just thinking about that for a while because I'd never, for a minute rather, not a while, um, because I never really noticed that. I think, well, there's this thing about the Chicago where, you know, it's so crazy and so cold for like, so like cry at the bus stop and your tears freeze on your face cold. That's an actual story uh, that I had. Um, that once it's not, people are just out. People are wearing shorts when it's 50 degrees outside. People are just like sitting on their stoops. Like there's a real kind of like uh, push to the streets. And so I think a lot of it just had to do with that. Like that was just sort of who we were. And, uh, you know, we liked sitting on our, our porches and, you know, just being out in the world, I think. Or maybe we just, you know, you know, when you shoot inside, it gets really hot. Yes. <laughs> maybe we just didn't want to destroy anyone else's homes or our own. Yes. So um, 26 years have passed and you are now the feminist university instructor, like Kia, advocating for queer visibility. Um, what is it like to come full circle? Um, it's, it's actually surreal. I, I just, in general, I think that just still talking about something, like I just wonder what how it would how it would feel or how I would remember my early twenties, and especially as it related to you know my queer community. How would I remember that if we hadn't made this film? I, I don't know that I would have remembered half of the things I wore, many of which are in the film. Um, so I, it's, it, it can be sort of emotional, but I also feel like uh, on top of everything, I created a time capsule of myself and like how I felt. And I, I was telling you before I talked to you that I, I was in uh, Brazil and they were doing a screening of it a couple of years ago and, I hadn't seen it in a long time and I just, you know, I often just like stand and watch the beginning to make sure 
that, you know, that's, it's, you know, the print is working and everything. And I, there, there's, there's baby me talking in this really hopeful um, monologue piece of writing about, you know, you know, finding the right girl and all of that. And, and I'm just in my pajamas and I look so young and it's black and white. So I look extra perfect and young. And I just, it just I just burst into tears. I actually had to like go and go to the bathroom and fix myself because I had to speak because I was like, wow, I was so, um, I was so hopeful. It's not that I'm, you know, I've turned into a bitter crone, but, but there's just something about, <laughs> there's just something about it that I was, that I was like, you know what, not everybody gets to see that, have that preserved forever. Um, I'm, I'm, a thrill that I still get to talk about it. I don't know. Full circle. I, I although I teach and I am uh, somewhat like Kia. I feel like Kia has tenure, and I'm just an adjunct. <laughs> <laughs> and tenure is always good. Um, well, Guinevere, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank um, you. We really appreciate you. Um, you know, sharing your experiences in the film industry and writing Go Fish. And I also want to thank the attendees for tuning in. Thank you so much again and have a great day. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Sati. Thank Bye, you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.